0: friends can be dismissed to junior church. That's grades one through six. And so if you are grades one through six, you can follow our children's workers to the fellowship hall. And if you're visiting with us today and you're wondering what goes on in junior church, perhaps you have a young person with you and you're visiting today in that age range, you are more than welcome to accompany them back to junior church. There are moments in our lives that we'll remember. And I hope that there's been a moment in your life where you can remember when you fully gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know uh, when that might have been for you, if indeed it's happened, but I remember being a young man in college down in Columbus. I had trusted Christ as Savior through the ministry of this church when I was 18 years old. And so I praise God for his ministry to me here. But I was down at North Columbus Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, as you might guess by the name of the church. And I was there as a student, and they had a series of revival meetings. If you're not familiar with what a revival meeting is, it's something that Brother Rick was alluding to when he was up here uh, before he, he blessed us in song. There are special meetings that the church holds, where instead of just meeting on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, we'll have several meetings throughout the week in order to get a concentrated hearing of God's Word so that He might do a concentrated work in our lives. It's an important time. That we spend together and there was this uh, revival meeting down there and it was david young who was the evangelist who came in and he had another couple with him very similar to what we do during our revivals they had someone who came in and worked with the children during those revival meetings and he had the mccombs with him and i remember i don't remember hardly anything that he preached that night except for the invitation like we do up here they had a time where they invited people to act on what it was and it was something about surrendering to the lord and if god called you would you go i think it was specifically in the idea of missions but i took it more as a a general call and he said during invitation that if god were to call you and you were to say yes how many of you would be willing to go well that's that's an easy thing to do until he said okay i want you to come forward and stand up here in front of the church (laughs) made made you feel a little uncomfortable it was an evening service so it's not like there were a lot of guests there But I remember that I I said to myself, sure, if God called me, I would go. At that time, I wasn't sure whether he would have or not. And he had us hold candles up in front of the, the church service, and he had someone come over and light all the candles. And then he talked about that if you were willing to go when God called you, that the enemy would work against you. The enemy would try and discourage you. You'd have problems along the way. And he, he came up and, and he would say, well, what this person might experience this problem. And then he would blow out their, their candle. And this person might experience this problem. Then he'd blow out their candle. And then he came over to mine and said something about, um, I actually forget what the specific thing was. But when he went to blow out my candle, I wanted to say to him, no, you don't. But he blew it out anyway because it would have ruined his illustration. <laughs> and I didn't want to draw any more attention to myself. I was already a little embarrassed being up in front of everybody. And I I, I can trace things back to that night. It wasn't directly a call to preach, but it was a it was a blank check written to God where, Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in my life, I want to say yes to it. And I didn't always stay that surrendered. There were times when I took the check back or when I gave him a spending limit, but then there were times when I realized I had done that and I would give it back over to him. There is a war within every believer if you know the lord jesus christ as savior you can identify as our sermon series is entitled the war within you can identify that there is a battle that rages inside of us and there are days when it is harder than others and there is a pull from the the old way of life there is a pull from this fleshly part of us you know you are more than just a body Some people want to tell you the story that you are just a body and there is no you in there. It's just the electrical impulses of your brain and you are no more than meat and electricity. I have good news for you. You are more than meat and electricity. You were created in the image of God. And because of that, you are not only a body, but you are a spirit and a soul in a body. There is a part of you that is Eternal that is separated, though it's in this body for this time, it is not just this body, and there will come a day as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he tarries his coming in our lifetime, when we will leave this body through the doorway of death, and the part of us that's really us, our spirit and our soul, will return to God who gave it. And this body will will remain here until one day Christ resurrects it, and we have those new glorified bodies upon this earth. I want you to know that that flesh that ties you to this world pulls you towards sin. And the spirit of God that lives inside of you is encouraging that inner part of you, that inner man, that inner woman, that inner life towards the things of the Lord. And as we've learned in our series, uh, there are things that we can do in order to win that war. If we do nothing, the flesh seems to have a field day because the default mode is what? It's the flesh. I know that sometimes we like to imagine that the Christian life is a pathway that we're walking on. But it's really more of an uphill climb. And if you stop for any length of time, you're going to start slipping back down. And you need the the arm of the Spirit of God reaching around your shoulder to help encourage you up as we make our way to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ and when we look at this war we we think to ourselves okay i know i have the spirit i know he lives inside of me he's given me everything that i need in order to overcome this war what am i missing and it may come down to just a single thing and that is a moment that i want us to think of as a henceforth moment a henceforth moment look with me if you would this morning in ephesians chapter four in ephesians chapter four we find The inspired word of God telling us about putting off the old man and putting on the new. It says in verse number 17 of Ephesians chapter 4, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so, be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, And that ye put on the new man, which, after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us something by which we can know you and to know your will. I pray that you would bless it now, that you would speak into us in this moment, that your spirit would accomplish exactly what it's aiming to do through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul wrote these inspired words to the church in Ephesus. It was a city where there were many Gentile people. If that's not a familiar term to you, know that a lot of Scripture is written from the perspective of Jewish people following God, of Jewish people following God. And in the mindset of God's people, there was usually a great division between those that were of the the lineage of God's people that were of the children of Israel and those that were from the outside. Sometimes it's not just referred to as Jew and Gentile, but as Jews and Greeks Greek was the predominant culture If any of you have ever traveled around the world before you'll notice that American culture seems to be everywhere And you can find American stores and American fashions and American music and American movies. It's everywhere In fact, you find the English language in many places Why is that? Well, our culture has become really the worldwide culture uh, for many things and just like we have that today with the united states and english They had that in greek times even though the greeks had been supplanted by the romans And so they viewed everybody that was not a gentile excuse me, that wasn't a jewish person as a gentile But there were some gentiles No, remember that jesus christ was a jewish messiah He was promised to the house of israel He came first to the house of israel, but not just to the jew though to the jew first, but also to the greek also to the gentiles and by this time in the first century that the gospel of jesus christ the good news of his death burial and resurrection had traveled outside of jerusalem outside of judea into places where mainly it was gentile people because the world was mainly gentiles and not jews if you looked at just number in population and ephesus was such a city it was filled with gentile people that came to believe in the jewish messiah And they didn't have to necessarily become Jews in order to believe in the Jewish Messiah. They became something different, something that God had hidden in times past, but had now revealed, which is the church. And so instead of working through the nation of Israel like God did in the Old Testament, God is working now through the New Testament church and will one day revisit the nation of Israel in the end times. All of that to say is when Paul is saying here, talking about other Gentiles, he's talking about those people that do not yet know Christ, that live fully how the Gentiles used to live. Well, how did the Gentiles used to live? Well, the Gentiles had their own gods, little g, plural. They had their own gods. Depending on whether they used the the Roman names or the Greek names, you may have heard of some of them. You may have heard of Zeus or Jupiter. You may have heard of Neptune or Poseidon. You may have heard of many different names from perhaps your studies or even stories that are out there. And they followed after these gods, and some of the worship that went on and the names of these gods or goddesses was vile. Whether it was human sacrifice, whether it was some sort of immoral sexual rites that were combined with, with worship, whether it was just drunken revelry, there was all sorts of terrible things that were connected with that way of living. And so that's what he's referring to when we look at verse number 17 together. He, sa- he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. When he says testify in the Lord, he is invoking the name of the Lord saying, what I'm about to say is important and it's true. What I'm about to say is important and it's true. He's placing an emphasis, not just Paul, but the spirit of God is placing an emphasis because Paul didn't come up with these words. The spirit of God moved through the apostle Paul and gave us exactly what he wanted us to have. And wherever God places an emphasis in his word, we ought to place an emphasis. Where God is quiet, we ought to be quiet. Where God speaks, we ought to speak. And where God emphasizes, we ought to emphasize. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, Walk not as the other Gentiles walk. You're saying, how are they walking? That's such a big deal. Well, it's not about how they're strolling down the street. This is talking about how they're living their lives, their daily walk. Some people might even talk about their walk with God. That's a church term that you hear, and they're talking about their daily life and interaction with the Lord. And so he's saying there's a way that Gentiles do life immoral pagan self-satisfying that that's the way that they do that and he says i don't want you to walk like that anymore because he was talking to not just unbelievers but to specifically believers in this passage and he was saying to these people that had put their faith in jesus christ that henceforth from this point onward there needs to be a difference There needs to be a line drawn in the sand. Having one foot in and one foot out is, is miserable. I love people who have fully committed themselves to following Jesus Christ. I love that they've made that decision. Do you know why? Because the alternative is to be miserable. You say, really? Those are the two alternatives? Well, if you know Christ as Savior, either you're fully walking after the Lord, doing battle with your own sin, enjoying his blessings, And, and because you're enjoying his blessings, you've got the joy of Jesus Christ inside of you, or you've got one foot in the things of God and in the life of God. And you've got one foot in the life that we used to have to live. And I say that very carefully that we used to have to live because now we no longer have to live that way. And when you've got one foot, some people might say one foot in the church, one foot in the world. What it means is that some of the time you're seeking after the things of God and some of the times you're seeking after the things of the world. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, the things that this world says are important, like the fame that you need to get and the money that you need to get and the approval of others and the esteem of others that you need to have. Your bank account needs to look a certain way and you've got to dress a certain way and you've got to have people applauding you and you've got to climb the ladder and you've got to work harder and you've got to work longer. All of what this world champions, there's a way that they they live after that, and they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to get that. That's a very different way of living. And when you live partially for that, but partially for God, you don't get to enjoy the benefits of either. The Bible says, and this might shock you that the Bible says this, but the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. You've got to finish that, that phrase there. Sin is pleasurable for a season. People that go out and they drown their sorrows and their problems and their care, uh, finding the end of the bottle or in drugs or in uh, immoral, pleasurable company. People that do that, they find release. They find numbness for a little while. And then it all comes crashing in on them. But if you have one foot in the things of God, you can't fully enjoy that because the the whole time you're at the bar, you're feeling, because the Spirit of God is telling you, I really shouldn't be here. You're you're talking about things, and the Spirit of God is telling you, I really shouldn't be talking about this. You're you're thinking in certain ways, and you're spending your money and your time and your efforts after a certain way, and and you know, I really shouldn't be doing this, and you can't fully enjoy that. But because we're tied and pulled between these two worlds, we don't enjoy the things of the Lord either. All we do is feel bad all the time. And we look and we say, well, I I can't go any deeper into that because I feel bad about it, but I'm not getting any of the benefits of knowing the Lord. And so there must be a moment, a henceforth moment, where we decide that we are no longer going to live in both of these worlds. A decision needs to be made. It talks about them walking in the vanity of their minds. You say, what is the vanity of their mind? The Bible word for vanity doesn't just mean that somebody is uh, uh, clueless and dresses well. Vanity is about emptiness. It's about expecting there to be something and there's nothing inside of it. You've had that happen. I remember my grandmother, she has since moved, but in her old house, she has my Grammy had a a green cookie jar. It was of an apple. You know the one I'm talking about. And every time we'd go there, she lives in Pittsburgh. Every time we'd go there, my, my little chubby feet would run over to that thing and I'd pull the top off and I couldn't even see inside of it because it was up on the, on the counter. And I would just reach my little fingers in there hoping to find her amazing chocolate chip cookies, which I came to find out later was just off the back of the Toll House package. <laughs> but as a kid, it was fine with me, right? And I reach in there and there were a few times when I would reach in there and there would be nothing. It was empty. There was a promise that it would deliver something, but it didn't deliver something. You can imagine how people that are are in drought are so eager for there to be rain because their crops need the rain to grow and everything's drying out. And they might see clouds and think, ah, finally the rain's coming. But the clouds hold no no actual rain. Just the idea that it might be there. It's vain. It's empty. It's useless. It's ineffective. And it says that there is a, a vanity in the way There is an emptiness, there is an ineffectiveness in the way of the old life that doesn't actually provide what it promises to provide. It never actually satisfies. Do you remember before you came to Christ thinking that the next great thing that happened to you would make you happy? The next thing I bought would make me happy. The next trip I took would make me happy. The next raise that I got, the next job that I got, the next child that we had, the next uh, physical achievement that i look we we, it was always something out there and the problem is happiness is is always in the future it's always in the future because when we open the cookie jar in the now there's nothing inside of it only empty promises it says in the vanity of their mind verse 18 having the understanding darkened you see these people they knew god the people that paul was writing to they, they knew god but the other gentiles those that were unbelievers, who were still living in that way of the old life, they didn't know God. They, had, they didn't know any better, you could almost say. We can't expect them to live after the things of God because they don't have, one, the knowledge of him, which is why we're supposed to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and two, they didn't have the wherewithal to live the life that they were called to. Their understanding was darkened, and they were being alienated from the life of God. Alienated? Alienated? It means separated. It means a foreign, to, being foreign to something or a stranger to something. There is a life that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. He shed his own blood on the cross, faced the becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took all of the weight of our sin, the punishment of our sin, and he became that and bore that in his own body on the tree. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of God's wrath was poured out upon him. And because Jesus Christ died for our sins, you and I have the forgiveness of sins. He paid the price that we could never pay. And because he rose from the grave, we know that he is who he said he is. That he is truly the son of God and death could not hold him because he is the Lord of life. Amen. And because he is the Lord of life and he gives to us life, that's life eternal. The eternal life that you and I have is the life of the eternal one. Christ in you The hope of glory. Because we have that, we have more than just fire insurance to keep us out of hell. And hell is a very real place. It's not a mindset. It's not oblivion and ceasing to exist. It is a real place. It is a terrible place. And God has gone to great lengths to make sure that nobody ends up there. That's why Jesus Christ did what he did. But he didn't just buy you fire insurance to keep you out of hell. He has arranged for you to live a life now that's far greater and far different than the way we used to live. Far greater and far different. You know what I always thought? I thought, and this was so dumb, I thought that Christ would take my life and make it better. That he would do a fixer-upper. Any of you ever fixed up a house and sold it? How many of you ever fixed up a house and sold it doesn't it always take more than you think it's going to More time more effort takes longer. It's never it's never as easy as it seems But I thought that's what jesus was going to do Jesus was going to come in and he was going to fix up bill's life Turns out he tore the whole thing down and rebuilt it from the foundation because it had a rotten foundation It needed to be built on christ and christ alone And so now the bible says that we are new creatures. We are a new creation in jesus christ So the old things are passed away. All of that is to say that this life that Christ has bought for us is not just a little better. It's completely different than the life we used to live. It has different motivations. It has different dreams and different purposes and different ways that we go about doing things. You probably, if you've had this change in your life, you probably remember what it was that you strove after before you had this change. What you, you wanted desperately, and now it's very different. How do you know it's different? Well, with us, it happens so slowly we don't even realize it until we meet an acquaintance of the old life. And they say, wow, you sure are different. And sometimes they don't mean it as a compliment, do they? <laughs> they don't mean it as a compliment. They're like, you are weird. Well, we don't fit in here, do we? Because we're, we're, now we're pilgrims. Instead of being of this world, now we're just in it on our way passing through to glory. And there is a greater, a higher life that the Lord Jesus Christ wants for us to live, and he wants for us to live it now. And these poor people that don't know Christ, they were separated from that life. They could not live it, they did not know it. Because of it was first of all they were alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. They did not know. Why didn't they know? Because of the blindness of their heart. There's two types of blindness. One is the blindness that might be visited upon you by tragedy. Perhaps there was a disease, perhaps there was something that went wrong and there was an accident and you were struck blind. But then there's also the phrase to turn a blind eye. You ever ever heard that? To turn a blind eye. I got in trouble, but they were willing to turn a blind eye this time. What is that? Willful blindness. I don't want to see. I don't want to know. I stubbornly refuse to see it. And this is the plight of those that do not know this life in Christ, is that they're blind because they don't want to see. You say, why wouldn't they want to see? The Bible says that that they've been blinded in their minds to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful thing to be saved. But there's a catch to that. Look with me in John chapter 3. You say, why in the world would people not want to enjoy new life in Christ? I had a roommate that was like me during our teen years, an atheist. We ended up in college together. And I remember as I got saved and went off to college and started to grow in my Christian faith, and and I would come home and I'd share it with him about that in our dorm room, And, and he was not happy. He was not happy with it. I would talk with him about salvation. I'm like, who wouldn't want to go to heaven? Who wouldn't want to have a new beginning? Who wouldn't want to have their sins? for? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Well, he didn't want that. Why? John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. You see, men, the old life, the old man, those that don't know Christ, a technical term might be the unregenerate. They love darkness because it hides their sin. I loved darkness at one time because it hid my sin. You say, I don't love darkness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're not a believer, but you say, I don't like have darkness. I don't hide anything. Really? So you, you, you never clear your browser history. You don't have a password on your phone. You don't keep certain things from people in your family. You just you just air out all your dirty laundry, do you? You say no, I don't do that. Why? Because we want some things to stay hidden. And if you come to Jesus Christ, you step into the light. And the light reveals all of the darkness and all of the sin. Great news. It's not just light, but it's cleansing. And all of the sin and all of the stain and all of the shame and all of the embarrassment and all of the evil that we've done and all the evil that's been done to us is washed away in Jesus Christ. And we have eternal life because of it. But we have to step into the light first. There's a great danger of people trying to share the gospel with others but never talking about sin, never talking about hell. Any of you like talking about sin or hell? I don't. Well, you're the preacher. That's half your business. No, I really don't like it. But here's the thing. You have to. It's required to tell people the bad news or they'll never seek the good news. If people don't know that they're in trouble, they'll never ask to be saved. And if they never realize their need to be saved, they'll never call on a savior in true faith. And so we must deal with the idea of sin and the punishment of it. It must absolutely be talked about. But it makes people uncomfortable. And I don't like to make people uncomfortable. Do you know what happened the first time I came into church and heard the gospel? Some, some very, very angry, evil, wicked man stood in this pulpit and told me I was a sinner. Can you believe that? He must have been wicked and evil because I thought I was such a good person. Turns out it was reversed. <laughs> I was not good, and he was. I just didn't like being told that. I didn't like being told that. No one does. No one likes being told that. And so what do we do? We turn a blind eye to it. We refuse to hear it because I don't want to change my life and I don't want to be accountable to some god. There was some new thing that came out. I I think it was on NPR, which is the weirdest of places to hear anything that might support something other than your your typical uh, evolutionary science mindset. But they said, we found some monkeys... And these monkeys, we found among them very simple tools that they used to crack open nuts. And they look strangely like the tools that cavemen used. And then the idea came in that, that, well, this could be troubling because maybe those things we thought that Paleolithic man was using was actually monkey tools. Boy, wouldn't that be problematic for people that are desperate to deny the account of creation because they must not have anyone to rule over them. Because if there is a God, then they are not in charge of their life. If there is a God, then they are accountable to somebody and they're desperate to not be accountable because it would mean that they would one day either willingly in this life bow before the Lord or unwillingly in the life to come bow before the Lord. For be assured, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either it will be done willingly now when we kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his salvation. But then it won't matter if you kneel because on that day, no one will be able to stand because the judgment of God will be upon them. The blindness, the willful blindness. Back in our passage in Ephesians, it says, verse number 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. Past feeling what? Past feeling shame. That they no longer are ashamed and they, they live out their wickedness. Darkness in the daytime. They parade it. They champion it. They have no problem. Whatever their sin might be, they just talk about it and they laugh about it and they, they throw it in people's faces. And, and if you say anything against it, you're the one with the problem. You're too uptight. You're too fanatical. You're too puritanical. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? I, I, I can do this. There's no problem with this. You know, there was a time when people were saying, shout out your abortion. Be proud of it like a badge of honor. Now, if at some point in your life you have had an abortion, I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. And he died for your sins. And he wants more than anything to be your savior. There is nothing, friend, that you could do that would make Jesus no longer value you. There is nothing that you could do. I have, in a very rare circumstance, I actually have $20 in my pocket. Right? Are any of my children or my wife in here? No, I get to hold on to it for just a little bit longer. Actually, it's the other way around. This is my allowance. All right? Now, I, I have this, and I'm, I'm going to crumple it. Does anybody still want this, $20? Well, what, what if... Does anybody still want this, $20? $20? Really? Okay. What about, no, I'm not going to do that. You say, why? Because the value of it was in no way diminished by any of the things that I've just done to it. And in the same way, anything that you have done or has been done to you in no way diminishes your value to the Lord Jesus Christ. But sin is still sin and wrong is still wrong. And the idea that people would still throw out that they have done wrong, and yet they don't care about it, that is a grievous thing. But it's, it's, part of, it's part of that Gentile lifestyle. And he is calling them out of that. He's calling them out of it. It says that they've given themselves over to lasciviousness. You've used that word this week, I'm sure. <laughs> lasciviousness, thats all, uh, no breaks. No holds barred unrestrained immorality do whatever you want regardless of how it hurts anyone else because it floats your boat if it makes you feel good do it that's what lasciviousness is and it says to work all uncleanness with greediness in other words to do everything that is wrong and wicked and miserable and they can't get enough of it more 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 i need more of it do you know why that they need more because it ceases to satisfy, and they need to go deeper into sin. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that? There, there are things that I've noticed. People who, who begin drinking to take the edge off of their problems. It starts out very, very small, and they're able to, just with a drink, every once in a while, they're okay. And it takes away their anxiety. And then it takes away their worries, and it numbs them. But then you know, now it's not every once in a while. Now it's every day, because it's just not enough anymore. And your body becomes tolerant to it. And so you need to drink something harder. It's no longer just running up and, and grabbing whatever the, the lightweight beverage is today, White Claw or whatever it might be. It's now I need something stronger than that. I need, I need strong drink. I need some sort of liquor. in order to, and, now, and now it's not just um, with friends. Now it's by yourself. And not just every once in a while and to the point now it's the point where you black out and you have no idea where you've been or what you've been doing. And you don't even remember what happened. You say, it just started with a little bit. Yes, but as the, the proverb says, a man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, the drink takes the man. Same things with drugs. It starts out a little bit, but it always ends far more. Than, it's just with friends. It's just something that I was pressured to do. It was there and I thought, it would, I, I've been going through a lot and I need it. And it sounds like a little, but it always takes you further than you want to go. And you have to keep heaping up to it. It's true with all sorts of immorality. Which is why people that look at filthy things have to find filthier and filthier things to look at that are more taboo in order to feed that lust that continues to grow. And the whole time the devil just sits back and claps and smiles as you destroy yourself. That's what they're doing. That is the life of the old man. But, verse number 20, But ye have not so learned Christ. You know who Jesus Christ is now. You have learned of him. It says in verse number 21 that you've heard him and you've been taught by him. And the truth is in Jesus Christ. You have been set free by the truth. You know what's true and false now and what's right and wrong and what ought to be done and ought not to be done. You have been visited upon and the darkness that you had has been invaded by light. And you can no longer turn a blind eye and and feel like you're, you're ignorant to it. Now it's just in front of you. Like the, David said in Psalm 51, he said, my sin is ever before me. Wherever I look, I can't get away from it because I know that it's wrong because something has changed. And once upon a time, you and I, before we knew Christ, could live that way and still make it through the day. But now, this is not the way we can live anymore because we know jesus christ it's interesting the first few verses of our passage are about the old man the last few verses of our passage are about the new man and you know what's in the middle you know what differentiates you know what separates the two you know what transitions from the old to the new the truth that's in jesus christ when you believe that jesus christ has died for your sins was buried and rose again from the grave when you ask him to forgive your sins and be your savior you become new let's look at that verse in second corinthians would you one of my favorite verses, second Corinthians chapter five. five, second Corinthians chapter five and verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What an amazing promise. You say, I don't feel new. That that shows that when I don't feel new, the Bible says I am, I don't feel, I am living less than the life that Jesus Christ purchased for me. I am acting like the old man, even though I do not need to be there anymore. It says that these people had heard Jesus' words and they'd been taught his teaching. I'm so glad that somebody taught them his teaching. The Apostle Paul. Others did so, and they continued. Praise God, someone taught you his teaching, right? That someone was willing to tell you. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. Maybe it was just uh, someone that you met at work, a friend, a neighbor. Who knows? But somebody took the time to tell you. And it's wonderful to take that time to teach the next generation. I don't know how many of you may have heard the good news, but this week at Good News Club at pine intermediate school seven young people trusted christ as savior that's like half of the kids that showed up got saved isn't that amazing and some of the kids that are showing up to this club used to be with us when we were in the other school and now they've gotten older and they moved to this school and they came back to club because they love it so much and some of them the kids have moved on and have graded out of that school but now their younger siblings are in it because they notice the change in the life of their siblings Praise God for the people that are making a difference and, and bringing these teachings to others, because Jesus Christ's words are true. In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse number six, Jesus saith unto him, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me." This world is drowning in information, but is starving for truth. You can look up your phone or take your phone out and you can look up whatever you want to look up and find information. But there's so many voices and so many different opinions that it's hard to know what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not. How many of you have heard about the, the latest uh, AI breakthrough that's known as ChatGPT or Open AI? How many of you have heard of that? AI standing for artificial intelligence. How many of you have played with it? Well, I want you to know it wrote this sermon today. No, it didn't. Did you know that it aggregates its information across the Internet? Did you know that the Internet is not one giant agreement on all topics? And so now you're going to outsource your thinking to whatever man or woman created that algorithm, created that pattern finding, and let it think for you? No, thanks. No, thanks. I've already outsourced that to somebody. You said you don't think for yourself? Not, not when there's somebody more qualified available. This is what is truth. This is what we base things on. Not what the, the recent AI development is. But the word of God, the truth that's in Jesus Christ, he the living word, this the written word. This is our basis for life. This is the authority for all Christians that call themselves bible believing christians to determine for us what's true and false and right and wrong and what ought to be done and ought not to be done verse number 22 verse number 22 back in ephesians it says that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man you've ever come home after working outside and you're filthy right you're absolutely filthy and you say i really can't even bring these clothes inside the house they're so dirty. They're covered in chemical. They're covered in whatever. I had a summer job at one point in time where I worked around a chemical called creosote. How many of you know what creosote is? It, it is very healthy to be around and, and easy to get out of your clothes. All of what I just said is false. And you would, you would have to take those clothes off and you'd have to put them off and you'd have to take off the filthy clothes. That's the idea of putting off. It's laying aside the conversation, the way of life, the way that you live that belonged to the old man. There's a a change that needs to happen because the old man is corrupt. It's polluted. It's twisted. It's going to pull you in the wrong direction. It's going to pull you towards sin instead of towards God. Because of deceitful lusts, deceitful lusts throw back to the idea of vanity They are things that promise you, desires that promise, if they're fulfilled, they will make you happy. And then they're not. They're not. And you you seek after them and you try and indulge in what your flesh tells you is going to be happy. And, And then when it doesn't satisfy, it's almost like you have a little meeting with yourself and you said, flesh, you told me that was going to be fun. Yeah, I know what I said, but you know what you really need? To do more of it. That's what's going to help you and it keeps pulling you further and further down a path that leads to destruction that we don't want to go. Oh, you may not lose your salvation because our salvation cannot be lost. We are secure in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and and secure in the hand of the Father, and no man can pluck us from the hand of the Lord Jesus or the hand of God. God would have to fail for you to lose your salvation. That is not going to happen. But your life on this earth can be one of sorrow, one of regret one of despair and disappointment. And God wants us to put off that old man because of where he will lead us. You know what it's like? It's like being a prisoner. I won't ask if any of you have done jail time or what prison you've been to. Please don't raise your hands. But chances are, when you were there, you didn't get to wear whatever you wanted to wear. What did you have to wear? Hypothetically speaking, one of those fancy orange jumpsuits you had to wear some sort of prison uniform right and that prison uniform probably had a number on it that said whatever your inmate number or had whatever US Corrections on the back of it and you had to wear that every day that you were a prisoner they used to have something they don't have it anymore they used to have something before they had bankruptcy called debtors prison how many of you ever heard of debtors prison imagine that you owed money to somebody but you couldn't pay instead of just saying, oops, bankruptcy, I'll start again, you went to debtor's prison, where either from outside means someone gave money, or you had money that you decided to pay, or you worked in that debtor's prison at manual labor, producing whatever, doing whatever, until you paid off the debt that you owed, and then you would get out. That's called debtor's prison. Imagine for a moment that you and I are in debtor's prison, and we're wearing the uniform of debtor's prison, And we're working and we're striving, and there's disease and sickness, and it it looks like we'll never earn the sum back to pay our way out. We'll never. We owe so much, we'll be here forever in torment, in toil. And then comes the Savior. And then comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And He comes along and He says, How much does that man owe? And He pays the sum in full. And you and I are set free. And we walk outside of that prison and we're still wearing our old jumpsuit we're still wearing the outfit from the old prison days we had no choice when we were in prison that's what you wore when you were there but now that you've been delivered and now that you've been paid in full and freed you no longer have to wear that the old things have passed away the scripture said all things are become new you say what am i missing then a henceforth moment where you decide, I'm done with that old way of life. The spirit is here and he can empower me and the truth of the word of God will guide me. I know that the flesh cannot win against the spirit, that the spirit will always win against the flesh. When I yield to it, when I allow him to fight the battle, I just need to take a moment and say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. Henceforth, I'm no more going to walk like that. There was a, once upon a time we had no choice, but now we do have a choice because we've been set free. And that flesh no longer has the power to hold you there. It no longer has a monopoly upon you. You and I can put off the old man. The behavior of the old man because of what Christ has done for us. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This isn't just a change of clothes. This is a change of who you are on the inside, of who you are in the deepest places. Verse number 24, that ye put on the new man. So there is, A putting off and a putting on. A putting off of the old man, a putting on of the new man. Now, I want you to know that this is not us saving ourselves. This is not us reforming ourselves. This is a moment when we determine to surrender ourselves fully to Christ. I've used the illustration in the past couple of sermons about a toddler trying to tie his or her shoes. And they're desperate to tie it on their own. And you reach down to try and help them because you're trying to get out of the house and they're taking forever. And they're like, no, I do it. And they keep messing around with those shoelaces and they're never going to tie it. They're never going to tie it. They haven't learned that yet. They don't have the wherewithal to do it. And so you're sitting there waiting for them to give up. Waiting for them to say, okay, help me. In the same way the Spirit is waiting for us to come to that moment, as that toddler must have a henceforth moment, you and I must have a henceforth moment, where we draw a line in the sand and we purpose in our hearts to say, we're done with the old way of living. And we're stepping fully into this new life. It says about this new life, this new man, that God has worked this in us, created it in us, And it's a life of righteousness where we do the things that please the Lord, we do the things that he requires, and true holiness, where we're separated from all of those things that we ought not be involved in and we are separated unto the Lord. Separation has to happen in a certain order, though. First you're separated to the Lord and then you're separated from the world. First you're separated to Christ, then you're separated from sin. You say, why is the order important? Because until God gets bigger, those other things don't get crowded out. Have you ever tried it the other way? I'm quitting this. I'm not listening to that anymore. I'm not watching that anymore. I'm not, going that, I'm not going to see that person anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not drinking that anymore. I'm done with it. And so you try and cut it out of your life. And then what happens? Either you go back to it or you put something else in its place. But when you go to Christ first, and he gets bigger in your life, and you're reading his word, and you're praying to him, and you're singing his songs and listening to his music and and filling your heart and mind with his word and attending his church services and, and saying yes to the preaching and surrounding yourself with Christian friends and serving God in your area of giftedness, all of a sudden you'll find that those other things, they get pushed out. The more you say yes to Jesus Christ, the more that his spirit says no to those things that you wanted to try and kick out. The order is very important. So if this challenge has been made to us, how do we practically apply it? Well, we need to have a henceforth moment. We need to fully surrender to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. From now on, every believer needs one of these moments. I have to tell you, unfortunately, you probably are going to need more than one. Because I remember as a young man, 20 years old probably, standing up in front of that church saying, I'll I'll do whatever the Lord wants me to do. And then when he actually came and said, this is what I want you to do, there were times when I'm like, hmm, maybe not. But it's got to begin somewhere. This dedication of our life. When was yours, believer? If you know Christ as Savior, when was yours? When did you fully commit to follow Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, don't you think that if someone truly believed in God that their life ought to be different? If they believe that there's really a Savior and that the Spirit of God really lives inside of them and these are the actual words of God, ought they not fully commit themselves to it? It's interesting. People on the outside have a pretty good perspective of what it is we ought to be doing. They're usually not always right, but they, they would say things like, are you supposed to be doing that? Are you supposed to be saying that? Are you supposed to be going there? Or that was really Christian. They, they have an idea of what it is we ought to If you've never had one of those moments, apparently the devil does not like what I'm preaching. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not calling you the devil up there. (laughs) Let's see if that helps. If you've never had one of those moments, you need to have one of those moments this morning. You need to have a henceforth moment. You say, I've been saved for 40 years. That's fantastic. Do you have 40 years of walking with Christ? Or do you have one year of walking with Christ 40 times? You see what the difference is? Because there have been years when I have gained nothing and no traction. I started the year in a certain place with God, and I ended the year and I was no closer to him. I was no more like him. We need to fully surrender to follow Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that it all begins with trusting him as Savior. This is about the war within a Christian. This is about ministering primarily this message to believers. But I want you to know that there is a far better life than what you're living. And Christian, if you've never had a henceforth moment, if his will is not your highest priority, if you haven't surrendered yourself, there is a far better life than what you're living right now. There is something out there. Where is the joy that Jesus promised? It's in him. It's in him and the closer we get to him The more we'll experience it make this morning your henceforth moment if you've never had one And if you have had one, but you found yourself giving jesus a spending limit putting a cap on that blank check You once wrote him putting an expiration date on that check that you once wrote him Maybe it's time to rededicate your life to the lord Secondly, we need to put off the old life We need to act like a true follower And that first act of being a true follower is to put off the old uniform, is to take it off and not live that way anymore. You and I are no longer prisoners. You and I are no longer prisoners. There's a distinct difference. Let me rephrase that. There ought to be a distinct difference between me and the people around me that don't know Christ. And if there isn't, chances are I still have. Maybe it's just one sleeve. Now, the idea of putting off a garment means that you you have to take it all the way off or you really haven't put it off. And so maybe it's just we have it on in one area. But Christ has redeemed you. He has freed you from that. Let's not dishonor his great sacrifice by living like he never freed us. And lastly, let's put on new life in Jesus Christ. Let's put on new life in Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to cast away the old. We must embrace the new. Christ has made us new and given us everything we need in order to live that life freed from that prison. How do we do it? we yield. I know we all think it's trying harder, but it's really not that. It's really not that. It's doing what we do instead of more of it and doing it harder. It's doing it in the power of God, yielding to his spirit, finally saying, I'm never going to get these laces tied. Lord, would you help me tie them? Would you guide my hands? Would you teach me? Oh, it's hard to be teachable because to be teachable, we have to admit that we're not yet perfect. We have to admit that in some places we're wrong and that we don't know everything. It's hard to be teachable, but there's no way to follow Jesus Christ without being teachable. The Spirit is waiting. That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man, which, after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? I want to thank you for your good attention. In our church, we have what we call a time of invitation where we invite you to act on what it is that Christ has spoken to you about. And, and I don't know what the Lord has spoken to you about this morning, but I am praying that he has spoken to you. I know he's spoken to me. Let me ask you a couple quick questions as you think about these things. Have, have you ever had a henceforth moment? Have you ever drawn a line in the sand and said, You know what? Jesus is calling me to this fully surrendered life. The blessings of that life are just on the other side. And I need to give my life fully. I'm not talking about getting saved or even getting saved again. There's no need to get saved again. Because again, God would have to fail for you to need another salvation. And Jesus never fails. But here's what I am asking. Have you ever fully given yourself over? You've seen the bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. If Jesus is your co-pilot, switch seats. Jesus ought to be the one setting the motivation and the direction and the desires for your life. If you've never had a henceforth moment, I want to invite you to do so this morning saying, Jesus, I surrender. Maybe you want to use this place of prayer up here at the front or right there in your seat. Maybe once upon a time you did write that that blank check to the Lord. You did surrender, but now you've put all sorts of stipulations as long as it doesn't get in the way of this and, and I've got these commitments now and these kids and, and, and this job and and these, and, and you can't touch that, Lord. I've, I've sectioned this off. If that's you this morning, you can have a new henceforth moment. You can draw another line in the sand and let the sun shine again in your heart as the songwriter said. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Some people will come and pray. Some people will pray right there in their seat. And I'll be standing right here up at the head of the aisle and just slip out of your seat and come and let me know and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to know. And someone will come and speak with you privately, a gentleman with a gentleman, a lady with a lady, and you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven. Believer, is it time for that moment? If it is let's say yes. Father, be glorified in how we respond to the working of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.